The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, How to Play China's Reopening. Today with me is Laura Garrett, CEO and founder of Rondeur Global Advisors. Welcome, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I love talking to you as always. And, and you know, there's so much, as we were talking about before getting on, um, that's been happening in terms of China. Uh, obviously, sentiment has certainly turned with some of these stocks up 50% plus since late October. For those who are not as into the weeds as we are, what's what's been driving this? Um, I mean, it's I think, you know, it started actually with just generally broad uh, bullish sentiment for emerging markets in general. I mean, so goes the dollar, so goes international and EM. We've got a case of the dollar and inflation peaking. And so you're getting this tailwind of uh, appreciating foreign currencies and emerging markets. And then you layer on these pro-growth policies, expansionary policies coming out of China. And you really have uh, an exceptionally sort of bullish macro scenario right now. Yeah. And that that was really it's really sort of been a U-turn in terms of both policies. And then, of course, when we're talking about policies, they're they're zero covid policies, which they've sort of turned around. And now we've sort of seen covid ripping through through major cities. Um, so how I mean, how do you think this recovery is going to play out, especially amongst consumers? Well, you know, I think we were talking earlier, this the savings rate is is really high right now. I mean, there was I think part of it was there was nothing to spend on. And then another part of it was just the government's policies had sapped consumer po- confidence over the last few years. So, uh, you know, our theory was at first it was going to be a crab walk, but uh, of late it seemed to turn into a rocket ship. And I think part of that is just we've all seen this trend in other countries opening around the world. And that is when the world opens and there is savings, that combination is powerful for, for consumption. Yeah, no, certainly that is. And we have the Lunar New Year coming up. And so this is the first time in three years that people are getting to go back home and, and whatnot. And it does look like travel, for example, has gone through the roof. Um, but given the fact that we've seen such huge gains already, I mean, how are you thinking about more upside here? I want to go back to 2021 on that comment, because, you know, when I think about uh, you know, the market, then you had a series of uh, of days like this, where you just had straight up markets. But for us back then, valuations weren't supportive. You know, it was a narrative market, a momentum market. Uh, we didn't see margin of safety in the valuations. Uh, I think the market peaked back then, it, you know, the MSCI China index peaked at 25 times trailing uh, multiple on PE. Today, we're at 11 to 12 times. And I believe that number is, you know, overstated because the earnings are really really depressed. So I think, you know, if you think about a market that normally trades around 12 to 13 times, and anytime you have momentum, it re-rates to much higher levels than that. I think you have a much better setup today than you did in 2021. You have cheap stocks. Yeah, yeah. And I know as value manager, that's something that you've struggled with for a while with China. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've talked to, you know, people I've spoken to, this is probably the bullish, most bullish I've been, you know, as someone who likes quality contrarian ideas uh, in a long time. 
Yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, you and I have had this conversation and every time I talk about Chinese stocks, everyone just wants to talk about Alibaba. <laughs> so, um, like, you know, just to, for the folks who don't, haven't been following along, I mean, Alibaba was obviously in the crosshairs of regulators. Um, it sort of really started um, this entire regulatory crackdown in the internet space. Kind of walk us through you, what you think has happened and where, and where we are now for Baba. Well, I think as you recall, every time you said, you know, you want to talk about Alibaba, I was sort of my response was sort of, do I have to? Um, <laughs> now, I mean, it's, you know, I want to, I, I look at the stock. I mean, it's, it's very cheap on a, you know, when you, especially when you extrapolate the cash, I, maybe I should even go back further. I mean, once a year we screen, uh, once at the end of the year and once in the middle of the year, we screen broadly across all emerging markets and look at sort of what has happened in the markets, where are valuations, where are our quality stocks sitting? And, I mean, it was just flat out too cheap to ignore when we screened it. And then it just so happened our screening coincided with when the earnings came out. And what I really like and what I really want to see is share buybacks. Mm. So we started to see that cash utilization get smarter and more aggressive. And then this, you know, more, you know, stimulative environment or less pressure from the regulatory framework came out. So I think the stock is very cheap. It's one of my favorite ideas right now. So, you know, it, it is it is definitely still controversial, though, I think um, um, you and I had this conversation late last night about how um, there's there are reports that China is taking, quote unquote, golden shares in, in some of these companies. Um, there's been a lot of concern about sort of intervention, both after the regulatory crackdowns, but just more broadly as as policy has shifted in China to to perhaps um, raise questions about how Xi Jinping will deal with the private sector. How do you think about all of that? I mean, you know, that news itself, like if you look at the fundamental impact, it's de minimis, it's immaterial. I think we're all still stung, you know, by the policies of the last two years. So when I look at that policy, it's 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 kind of normal policy. It's policy before all of the regulatory crackdowns. So, but I, I think it does scare people. It hurts sentiment. But then you get, you know, I think it was an hour or two later, you get news coming out that the you know Commerce Department or the Chinese Commerce Department came out and said they wanted to see more normal trade with the U.S. again. So that got the markets going. I think I see more positive than negative right now. So um, maybe we, we can talk. I mean, we have a, our own proprietary framework that we call CGP squared. Uh, we look at it's a lot of academic and practical uh, work on credit expansion, geography, politics, and people. And what we see right now is two of those uh, attributes accelerating for China. First, you have expansionary monetary and fiscal policy and really supportive uh, macroeconomic landscape now. And then you also have the politics getting less uh, aggressive and impactful. So from our model, it looks positive. And we were completely aware of the risks. Mm -hmm. And and I think we can we can dive into those risks in a, in a bit. But I, I think that you're right. Like the the headwinds, the major headwinds at least have turned sort of positive to kind of create this at least a sugar rush <laughs> um, in the market. Um, so I, I want to remind the audience to send us your questions, and I'll I'll try to get them um, as we get through this conversation. Um, so I you know you mentioned the Chinese Commerce Department wanting to sort of. Um, get trade back going and, and whatnot. Um, the sentiment from the U.S. doesn't seem to be as hospitable. I mean, how are you thinking about sort of the risk that comes out of the U.S. from a political standpoint? Yeah, I, I think that's the risk. I mean, I think with our economy, you know, with our economy softening from, you know, less stimulus, I think, you know, good relations make a lot of sense with China. But 
Um, you know, I'm not a politician, so um, I'm, you know, I'm reticent on how the U.S. will act. And I think you want to be cognizant, you know, follow a couple of stocks really closely in China and be cognizant of the valuation just in case it is a sugar rush. Right. So I think you frame it perfectly, Rashma. So then tell me what else is, is interesting to you in inside of China um, in terms of stocks that kind of benefit from this this U-turn in policy and, and sort of the broader reopening? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, people talk a lot about direct beneficiaries from travel, but those were sort of starting to find a floor uh, in the summer. Um, I think that's because, you know, we all knew the 20th Party Congress was going to happen. We all thought opening would happen right after the 20th Party Congress. So a lot of those stocks have re-rated on a multiple basis. Um, you've got to see earnings growth come through. I think, you know, for the listeners, you know, who are following any travel or travel stocks, that's what they want to see, the sort of uh, H worlds, the I guess I call it like the red roof in of China. You want to watch for those earnings to accelerate. Um, but the the opportunities are really, to me, and within China, in these sort of places where the regulatory regime regime is getting better, where there's a consumer cycle that may accelerate. So the Alibaba's, the shoe companies, uh, th- those are really interesting right now. Mm-hmm. So how are you thinking about the consumer? Because there have been um, concerns that the scarring of three years of this, not just of the COVID restrictions, but obviously a, an economy that's been hurting the property market, which we haven't talked about yet, um, struggling, unemployment amongst youth being in the double digits. I mean, like, what, how is consumer different, or are they, than a couple years ago? Well, you know, my comment would be, I think people have short memories. Um, well, maybe this is a, this is a complicated topic, but I think to think, you know, the Chinese were talking about wanting to focus on the real economy and not the financial economy. And that's sort of what got us into this mess mm-hmm. uh, to begin with. Um, I don't think those two things are, are you can detangle those thing, things. I mean, the financial economy has become the real economy because central banks around the world, including mm-hmm. the Chinese, have allowed that to happen. So I think, you know, seeing these financial markets get going again, seeing opening get going again, I think that will bring back a, a lot of confidence to the consumer. I, we've seen it around the world. The second, the second, you know, the world opens, it's like a running of the bulls to mm-hmm. consume. So especially services. So I would expect the same thing. And the savings rate is very supportive of a return of, of consumption. There's a lot of money on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's can we talk about the property market? Um, for those who have not been following along, that was one of the sort of um areas of crackdown for for the policymakers in part because they were trying to deal with a speculative boom um and the debt issues that um sort of linger around the economy. What's the situation right now in the property market, and how are you thinking about that? I mean, first of all, you have a lot of the things that we think of in the Western world as you know pro property, and that's low interest rates. Um, low and falling interest rates, Uh, what you don't have and what I think, you know, would be a leg up for the story, a leg up for valuations is you need to have a belief from the Chinese people that the property will actually be completed. So I think that needs to be solved first before the property market gets going. Um, That said, we were talking about where there are valuation opportunities still, and that is one place where their, you know, valuations are still depressed uh, with within China because I don't think people are fully believe yet that the, they've got the policy right. I don't think they've got the policy right quite yet. Um, and and so just to kind of give people a little bit of perspective of how the property market there is different is people are buying homes before they're built, right? And that's kind of where we've kind of run into trouble where some of these these developers have not been able to sort of 
um, you know, figure out their construction and get that dealt with. Um, and, and so that was really sort of a hit to confidence. So it sounds like it, these, some of these policies might sort of tackle that, that situation, at least for some of the higher quality developers. That's right. I think that's a perfect summary. I, I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> um, um, so in terms of um, looking at some of the other areas that have had regulatory pressure or that benefit from the consumer cycle, um, is there anything other than internet um, tech where you feel like the regulatory pressure is lifting? I'm, you know, I'm more excited about, you know, the e-commerce space, internet tech than uh, other spaces, maybe partially because, you know, those are spaces that work around the world. We tend, we tend to invest in areas where we have a circle of competent, competence and, you know, that is an area where I feel like I have more competence. So, um, you know, that's where I have the strongest opinions about improvement. So, that makes sense. Um, okay, so in, in terms of um, some of these questions that were coming in, let me just get a couple of them. Um, so Voon is asking, would you think that the risk reward is better in the A share or the H share market to invest in? So obviously the, either the domestic mainland market or the one that trades in Hong Kong um, at this point in time. It, it's, it's really stock by stock because I think what's interesting is there are still some travel opportunities left in the a share market where they, they've lagged you haven't seen as much multiple re-ranking i think one space would be potentially to look at would be you know and do your own research would be the airports we we don't own them but you know they look like they've been lagging to me it looks like a space where we can you know you can roll up your sleeves so i don't have an answer you know that this the covid world that we've lived in where you've had covid opening closing has one of the been one of the toughest environments in my history to make broad generalizations about, you know, spaces. So it's really stock by stock. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so just kind of coming back to Xi Jinping and, and policy, um, there was a lot of angst. Um, you know, I, I think there was a period of time where, where investors were wondering if China was still investable. And then we saw sort of the consolidation of power with Xi Jinping taking a third term, getting rid of opposition out of the 20th Party Congress. I mean, what what are you going to be looking for after this sort of acute phase of getting the economy back on track? You know, what what do you think happens to policy? Uh, what does he do to the private sector? What is sort of the foreign policy look like? It's a complex topic. I mean, the politicians seem to have 10 years until suddenly they didn't um, <laughs> just took mm. took a little bit of, you know, I guess, up, you know, frustration and protesting from the people. I mean, the people in China have been, you know, there's sort of a, you know, a, a pact that, you know, you guys can have politics as long as we get prosperity and some private freedoms. Mm -hmm. But I think the Chinese people had, you know, there was too much power given the politicians that the pendulum had swung too far and the Chinese people were no longer getting prosperity, broad prosperity and, you know, freedom. So that pendulum to me has seemed to have changed very quickly and i mean when you listen to you know the most recent conferences we've had this complete swing from the 20th party congress where it was all about politics yeah all about growth so i think your your concern is absolutely spot on is this a sugar rush you know is this a one-year two-year event i mean what we all really want to see is the china of old the china that we all know the pro-growth china um, do you think that's going to be harder in a world of deglobalization and some of these other things that are not in China's control? 
and we, you know, yes. And I think it's, it's broadly a positive for emerging markets, I think, because you have one of the things is that emerging markets have been a China only story. I mean, if you look at the correlation to the emerging markets in China, it's, you know, virtually one for one. If you look at the multiple of the emerging markets index, it's driven by China. So in some senses, you know, I want it to be that because I want to see a much broader emerging market story. And I think you've got one right now. You've got the reshoring, nearshoring, multi-shoring story um, for a lot of countries out there. So I I like that. And so how I want to be positioned for China is I want to be positioned for the domestic story because I think that's the engine that the Chinese Mm -hmm. have to get going. Mm-hmm. So I want to be positioned for what is the Chinese consumer doing? Where are they going? What are the, what are they spending money on? Yeah, so it really is the the heart of the the trajectory, I guess, the consumer there in China. Um, I before we got on, we were talking about sort of your new um, acronym for <laughs> for emerging markets. Well, I mean, those who are not familiar with emerging markets, there have been a long history of acronyms that have eventually sort of um, led to great uh, fun launches and then uh, not such great performance down the road, BRICS being one of them. Um, so tell me what your latest um, acronym is, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but um, yeah. what it, in terms of the opportunity it pro- well, provides. Well, second we say it, we know it'll be the death of all these countries. <laughs> so we, we, the only acronym we could come up with that works is VICTIM or VICTIMS. The, the S is little. We still haven't decided whether South Korea or South Africa should get a big S yet, but it's Vietnam, India. China in the short run, uh, Thailand, uh, and uh, Indonesia, Mexico. I, we think those countries all benefit substantially from the multi-shoring or friend-shoring story. So, uh, you know, we, you know, so th- th- we're really pretty positive about the, you know, potential breadth for emerging in the future. And so, I, you know, I think I, I get a lot of questions, and, and perhaps you do too, of people who are hesitant um, to invest in China or don't want to invest in China for one reason or another, or the corporate governance or, you know, some of the um, human rights issues, the uncertainty over the geopolitics, and, and want to sort of still play China's recovery. Like, how are you thinking about that? How, what are the other opportunities outside of China to tap into this, um, this story? We, you know, we, we often joke that our international strategy has more exposure to China than our emerging markets strategy is just because the world is so dependent on the U.S. and China. I mean, China is the world's biggest economy. So, so goes China, so goes the world. And there are just a lot of different ways that you can play uh, that potential resurgence of growth. I mean, Europe, it's Europe's number one trading partner. Their luxury goods companies depend on China. Their industrial companies depend on China. Uh, China's uh, rebirth, hopefully if it lasts, um, you know, could could make the recession a lot, you know, less impactful for a lot of these countries. Um, so we look at European luxury goods companies uh, like LVMH. We look at uh, shoe companies like Puma. Uh, Pre-COVID, uh, China was the story for that stock. And, and we still think the local players are getting better in China. They're going to take share. But the market was growing much faster uh, than the rest of the world. And so we still think there's growth to be had for these companies and it tends to be high margin. Japan is a huge play. Um, prior to, to COVID-19, Japan had 10 million uh, visitors from China annually. Right now in March, they only had 10, uh, roughly 10,000 uh, visitors. Uh, that number, uh, Central Japan West is a big play, the trains on China. 
Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, that Japan, Korea, I mean, a lot of those neighboring countries, Thailand, which I know you and I have talked about before, too. I mean, how are you thinking about the tourism in Thailand? Th Thailand, you know, already had benefited last year. Other countries were going back. I think Thailand is an obvious beneficiary. The stocks are more expensive there because it is yeah. an obvious beneficiary. Um, this sort of like tit for tat battle between Korea, Japan and China on opening, mm. you know, on COVID testing oddly enough, is giving you a second shot at a lot of these tourist travel stocks because they're selling off on that. And I think it's just a matter of time before that full opening happens. That makes sense. Um, so you're, you're an active stock picker and you kind of talked a little bit about sort of why you think it's so important, especially right now, to kind of be stock selective. Frank is asking what ETFs, um, you know, invest in China or the emerging markets. There's, of course, the iShares MSCI China um, and then the iShares uh, MSCI Emerging Markets Index for broad sort of exposure. But Laura, why, why um, do you think especially at this juncture, it is important to kind of be a little bit more nuanced in where you're picking your spots. <laughs> because I, you know, I, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you, you want exposure, you know, ETFs are, you know, the ones you like or the, could, could be an interesting way. But from my perspective, it's also to be really cognizant or have someone watching that sugar rush. I mean, it's been, it's been crazy markets for the last three few years. You went from growth the biggest rotation from growth to value, we saw that in EM too. Now growth has become value. And so these movements, these pendulum swings are, are very, very um, extreme. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's something we pay very close attention to as active managers because these stocks can get go from cheap to overvalued quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, so I've got another question here from Voon, and I think it's a question that a lot of people are asking, and, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but what do you think is needed to make China investable in the minds of those who claimed it was uninvestable earlier in the year or last year? As, you know, of course, we saw what the Chinese did with the, um, the after-school education companies basically essentially wiped out their business models, um, the war in uh, Ukraine has raised questions about Taiwan and what happens to money that's invested in these places. I mean, what, how do you think, what, what, what do you think needs to happen to kind of uh, mend that confidence situation? You're going to have to see a series of sustainable, you know, positive policy coming out of China, growth supportive policy for the cost of, you know, risk to come down in China. Yeah. China should realize after the last two years that financial economies economies and the real economy are, are, you know, inextricably linked. And so they need to, you know, be supportive of the financial economy, get the cost of capital to come down. And that's good for China. It's good for the world. So I think you have to see a series of those things happening. Uh, that's my opinion. I, I, so I think, you know, another way you can look at it is investors tend to have short memories. We can all think about what happened with uh, fossil fuels last year. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. True, or Saudi Arabia, or some of these other pockets of, of markets that were sort of deemed uninvestable and um, are no longer the case, I guess, for, for folks. Um, so just kind of sticking with this idea of um, the opportunity outside of emerging or outside of China in emerging markets, I mean, what are some of the other kinds of companies that you like that are sort of beneficiaries of um, the reshoring or the deglobalization, or even China sort of setting up shop? elsewhere, right, to kind of diversify its own supply chains? Like, what are you seeing on that front? Kind of walk through different markets. I mean, an obvious beneficiary is, is, is Vietnam. It's always been tough 
uh, you know, for investors to play Vietnam because the market itself is frontier and it's so narrow. So, I mean, you have to kind of take a Jim Rogers approach to Vietnam and just, you know, own the country. It's a tough market yeah. from a stock picker perspective. Uh, the other ones in in emerging markets, if you look at where the Chinese tourists spend, spent, you know, in the peak travel year of 2019, it was Japan, then Korea, Taiwan, U.S., oh, Hong Kong, I forget Hong Kong too. So those are, are countries to watch to, to look for opportunities. I think South Korea in particular, uh, convenience stores in Taiwan, they're not, you know, slick you know, ideas, stocks, they're lower beta, they're more conservative way to pay, play a travel recovery. But those are ways you can play, you know, a resurgence of Chinese travelers. So you mentioned Hong Kong. Hal has a question about, you know, there have been reports of a million Chinese sort of raring to go to Hong Kong. Um, what is the prognosis of a Hong Kong in the, in the allure? I mean, how, how do you see that kind of playing out? Uh, yeah, I it's funny until I started looking at the travel numbers, I wasn't, you know, thinking about it so much as a travel play and more as like a direct, direct exposure play to China. I think I've, you know, this has all happened so fast. I would say like the, the comment itself is interesting because I've missed a couple of what I think are obvious ideas from casinos to, you know, eating out in Hong Kong. So yeah, I, I think it's wild, wildly bullish for, you know, local consumption plays yeah. in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you follow so many things, both macro and micro. I mean, what are some of the tidbits out there, an anecdotal things that you've seen recently that really sort of speak to the opportunity? Um, geez, I, oh, well, I mean, we haven't, maybe we should, one thing we haven't talked about too is um, global risk. Um, yes. There was a really interesting piece about um, China's growth and inflation. Uh, I don't think it becomes a problem until uh, mid-year. But, you know, Rushma, I'm a visual person. We've talked before, like, when you when I went to Brazil and paid $35 for a slice of pizza and some, you know, a Diet Coke, I knew that there was something wrong with the currency. It was too strong. The U.S. has felt like that this year, right? Mm -hmm. you, go to, yeah. you stop at a fried chicken restaurant and it's $35 for two people for really cheap fried chicken. You know, that feels wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when you go to a place like Japan, it, it feels extremely cheap. So, you know, my boots on the ground experience is, you know, people are going to flood into these places. Um, and I worry, you know, about what that will do for inflation because the economy there, local economy, they've had a ton of stimulus, uh, you know, travel stimulus for the locals. So in terms of, are you talking about Japan or are you talking yeah, about Yeah, hot, hot, yeah. hot, right? And I think yeah. it feels hot, 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 right, already. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you don't necessarily see that in public companies because I think it's happening with small and medium enterprises that kind of fall below all of our yeah. eyeballs. But yeah, I think there's going to be inflation there. I think it'll come fast because I don't know how you take economy that's been closed for three years and reposition the labor force to handle 10 million Chinese tourists. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, I think the estimate from Bloomberg last night, and I think that Bloomberg has just done some tremendous work in China, on China over the last week was that at a 5% rate of growth, it will add 0.7% to global inflation. And we've all seen that growth tends to be underestimated when a country opens because people are raring to go and they have a lot of savings. And so I, I would wager on faster growth than that too.
So you, you're almost talking about export. So China will export inflation, not necessarily through the commodities channel, which has often been the case because this is a consumer led um, recovery, but more because they're going to be spending and, and, and flying to Japan and other parts of the world where labor is already sort of tight. Is that? Really yes, I think, I mean, and the commodities problem too. I mean, if, they, if you know, if we get sort of, sort of 6% plus growth rate, out of China because of reopening, which we've seen, right? I mean, the snapback from slow to fast has been, we've, everyone has under, I've underestimated, I've been more bullish than I think consensus and we've underestimated it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, they're saying that could add 1.7% to global inflation. So, I mean, that's a, that's a risk come mid-year for, I think all of us as, of investors that you, we could have this sell the rally um, yeah. problem, you know, going forward. Interesting. Yeah. No, I I've, I was just talking to some other folks who said that, um, you know, obviously this is coming as the rest of the world is slowing to some extent. And so maybe um, it's not as bad. I mean, the oil is the situation, I guess. That's where the, the price increases will come in terms of commodities, because they're not going to be on a big building spree, right? Are you expecting the property market? Like, are you expecting big construction projects and whatnot out of China? I No, not so much but you know you never know with consumptions and plastics and it's so hard to i'm not our we have two team members of our team who are better oil and gas experts than me maybe there's been some stockpiling of commodities too Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah might not have this instantaneous impact but it could have an impact down down the road and i mean if you get a lot of consumption you get plastic yeah yeah that's true that's very true. Um, so I guess then we'll we'll kind of round out with with risks. I mean, other than inflation, what else are you worried about as a global investor, especially in in some of these emerging markets? I mean, the way we haven't. I mean, we didn't talk about you know India. Yeah. India has been the low beta to China's high beta for years now. Indonesia is the low beta to China's high beta. So you know, India has been a flight to safety market. It's a little expensive this year. Um, you know, we think it, you might have a period of time where you have multiples consolidating. Again, I'm generalizing because yep. it's a market and there are cheap stocks within India. Um, Mexico, we really like the reshoring, nearshoring play for the long haul and the valuations aren't as extreme. It also tends to be low, lower beta market. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we think the risk is, you know, really, you know, so goes the U.S. and China, so goes the world. If inflation rears its ugly head in the U.S. again, we get rate hikes again. I think that, you know, puts, you know, it's stops the rally yeah um, although china seems a bit more idiosyncratic a bit more like 2008 i think you know the hope is that this isn't a sugar rush and it's more like 2008 where we have what happened in china was not you know again the the risk of it being a value trap that what happened over the last few years was the what was different about china and hopefully mm-hmm. we go back to a more open china which is the normal china Mm-hmm. I guess that's going to be a wait and see. I mean, like, is, are there moments like what what will you be looking for for that tell, I guess, like to get, you know, are there going to be is it just really back to the policies and how sustainable those policies are? Because there's this entire movement towards, quote unquote, common prosperity, which was put, it seems like at least put on hold for a little bit um, by Xi Jinping. And that, of course, had rattled investors in the last couple of years. Like, how are you thinking about those types of things? Um. You know, <laughs> slowly with an open mind, um, long term. I mean, we really also we we 
you know, independently with stocks, we monitor valuations as well. I think I talked a little bit about that CGP squared framework. Yep. So we have a number of vectors that we look at on the political front where we look and say, okay, this is getting worse or this is getting better. So we'll, we'll be looking for those, you know, items that could get worse. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a bit of art and a bit of science. The CGP squared framework is science, but I mean, there's a lot of art behind reading the data that comes out of that framework, plus it tends to lag. So yeah, um, so it, it does kind of go to this idea that perhaps this is not a buy and hold and forget about the situation for the next three to five years. A lot of things are are in flux. Yes, TBD. I hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I feel that way. I always feel that way yeah. about Korea, though. Too. I mean, it's a different issue. I mean, you look at those two countries, right? And I I think the problem with Korea is always bottom up. It's the, mm -hmm. the individual corporate governance is, is not good. So, you know, I, you know, you, I want to be optimistic and be a long-term holder, but it's, it's tough to be anything more than a renter. So yeah, yep. I hope, I hope that we mm -hmm. can be long-term holder. I hope it's kind of back to, to sort of the openness we were all used to in China before the yeah. last few years. Um, I guess we'll have plenty to talk about through the course of the year. Um, this was great, Laura. Thank you so much. It's, all the time we have for today. Um, thank you all for tuning in. And Laura, again, always appreciate your insight. Um, there will be no Barons Live on Monday in observance of Martin Luther King Jr.'s day. Please join us again on Tuesday. We'll have Barons Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, speaking with Dan Niles, founder and senior portfolio manager of Satori Fund on the outlook for technology stocks in 2023. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a wonderful weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.